Torrential floods, bone-chilling cold spells, dust bowl droughts. Despite the huge impact of these extreme weather events, climate change can be sinisterly subtle. In fact, it's happening on such a slow, massive scale that it's hard to notice in our daily lives. In order to truly understand climate change and its impact, we have to turn to people whose very lives depend upon it, farmers. In fact, the USDA estimates that 90% of crop losses in the U.S. are caused by extreme weather. As weather patterns grow increasingly unpredictable, farmers and ranchers are on the front lines of the climate war. What combination of farming practices, technology, and science will help us prevent the devastating consequences that scientists are forecasting for farmers and, ultimately, our food? This is Episode 6 of The Growing Debate. The Growing Debate is a podcast series that questions beliefs about agriculture and our world. The series is sponsored by Corteva AgriScience, so you'll get an inside look at modern agriculture. Don't expect easy answers from this podcast series. In fact, expect to walk away with more questions. I encourage you to reach out to farmers to find your own answers. I'm your host, Diego Footer, and on this episode, you'll hear from a soybean farmer who's watched entire fields and livelihoods get washed away by floods. You don't have to drive too far outside of Chicago to start seeing agriculture. Along the sides of the interstates, a lot of soybeans, a lot of corn growing, and driving down from Chicago to meet our guests, a lot of water pouring down on the road. It's not only tough for drivers and consumers, but that water also makes it tough for farmers. Even now, as we approach Kendall's farm, there's a lot of features that indicate water is happening. You can see a lot of ditches, culverts to help shed water off the fields. Creeks look like they're really high as we drive past them. Kendall, how you doing? Diego. Uh, so my name is Kendall Culp. Um, from Rensselaer, Indiana, northwest part of the state. And uh, we're part of Culp Family Farms. And we have kind of a unique situation here on our family farm. So there's actually th- three generations of us farming together right now. So my father is 83 years old, still very active on the farm. Um, my son has come back to the farm. And so we all farm together. My folks bought this farm in, in 1971, and there was a gentleman that lived in that house that farmed it, and his wife was ill, so my dad let him farm it again the next year, and then he retired, so he'd get to retirement. And so a lot of this was stuff that was already here. Um, and so this barn that like he used is a, like a storage shed for his combine, and so you'll see when we get up here. So we've got cattle in here. We've got, we keep our straw bales in here that we use for bedding for our animals in the wintertime. So my son and daughter all live in this house now. We used to have hogs in here. You know, you had to clean the pen, scrape them by hand twice a day. Your pigs were born in there. Um, so then we built this barn um, because we raised them down there for a while. And you made pens to finish the pigs. And so we built this confinement barn. 
and we brought them over here and you finished them here. This is where the grain was at and the feed and everything and it made it a lot more efficient. So in the day, that was real modern building. You know, one of the things you were saying right when we rolled in is we finally got some rain and I'm looking around like for me coming from California where it's super dry, everything's browned out this time of year. It looks really lush here. Has rain been pretty infrequent this year? Um, probably if you look at the total, the averages for the year, we're probably above average. It just came all early in the planting season. It came early in the growing season. So it came in um, March, April, May. Um, so it came early and it came in large amounts. And then once it quit, it really stopped and dried up. I think we are seeing um, weather patterns more extreme than we've seen before. Um, I can remember, um, so I started farming actually in the late 70s, early 80s, um, and I remember the drought of 1988. I mean, I, I don't think I'm ever gonna forget that. Um, that It was not only dry, but it was hot. It was hot and dry and windy all summer long. Um, just, I mean, just devastated the crops. They, they just, um, they just, they had no moisture. Um, there was no, you know, a lot of times at night, if it cools down and you get dew, so you get a little bit of, you get a little bit of moisture naturally, and you didn't have any of that. Um, that was that was a tough year, a year that I'm not gonna forget about too easily. But then you go back to 2012, so more recently, you know, you fast forward what 25 years, and you come up with another drought. Now it wasn't wasn't quite as hot and windy as I remember, but it certainly was was dry. Um, and so how you know how frequent? Our droughts, we've had other droughts, but those are the two big ones that in my lifetime that I can certainly point to. So you've got, you've got the drought of 2012, then we had the flood of 2015, so just three years apart. So you go from one extreme to the other. Extreme is putting it lightly. In 2002, researchers estimated that damage from the climate change induced rainfall could total as much as $3 billion annually. Turns out, they were too optimistic. Agricultural aid for floods this year came in at an estimated $16 billion. You mentioned back in 2015, you had a lake here on your property, 80 acres. Can you give people some perspective on what the weather event was to make that happen? The governor of Indiana came here to visit, and the governor of Indiana is now our vice president. So he was on our farm here in 2015. He'd heard how bad it was up here. So, so our crops were planted. The crops were emerged, and then the flooding came. That water goes somewhere, and it's going to eventually go to the lowest spot, right? Or a sewer drain or storm sewer drain or like that. Well, we, this is a fairly low area because this main waterway runs through, this ditch runs through our property. Um, so it just filled to capacity, and all these art arteries are running into it, and it, it had to go somewhere, so it flooded. So it actually came out of its bank there. It ran under over this county road. It ran onto the ditch, and then it ran over, and it ran over another two more county roads before it got back into that ditch. I mean, it closed county roads because there's too much water going over. It's just, I mean, it's just amazing to think that. I mean, we even saw fish swimming across the road because they came out of the river, across the road, back into a channel, and eventually got back in there. In our case, we had this beautiful 80-acre field of soybeans that was completely underwater. I mean, all you could see was water. It was just a, it was just a lake, and the lake, of course, crossed multiple roads. Um, so it was a bad situation, and um, the governor at that time, uh, Mike Pence here in Indiana, um, 
was aware of the flooding situation in the northern part of the state, and he wanted to visit a couple farms. And so he came up and, and made arrangements and came to our farm that day. And I kind of thought he might bring a helicopter up because you could see a lot from the air. And again, towns flooded. I mean, every, any, all the rivers were swollen and over, over the banks. Uh, but he drove in and um, came to our farm, and we actually walked back around a ditch back to where that dumps in. I took him around, and, and it's not that far of a walk, but I mean, it's, I don't know if it's a half mile or so back there and walked the ditch. So there was no good way to get there. We did have a little, an old tractor and a rack wagon some people rode, but I told the governor, I said, bring boots. It's wet. You need to bring boots. Well, the congressman brought rubber boots, but the governor just had just he just had leather boots on i mean they weren't waterproof or anything but and he had jeans on and we took off walking back there and it was amazing because there was a there was a a pipe so through the bank along the river that water is it's a surface drain so water would flow from the field into the river well the river came full and it backed up through that pipe and washed it went the other way it went back out into our field and there was so much force that actually it just washed the pipe out and washed the soil and the whole bank out and just cut this big crater in the side of our ditch back there. And actually, and it did, it came with such force, it dug a hole, it was probably five feet deep and just made like a, a little pond out in, the, out in this field. It just, I've never seen anything like it. And in the end, when we fixed it, we had to get a bulldozer in here and haul soil in and put that back. But anyway, Governor Pence walked back and there was a group of us and went back with him and showed him what that was. And he wanted to see what the devastation was on, to farmers. I've actually seen him since then and he remembered, he remembered that day. So I have a signed picture by the the vice president back here at our, our pond the day that he came there. And is it safe to assume those beautiful looking soybeans were no longer? So they were no longer. They completely killed. So, I mean, just like, you know, any kind of plant being underwater, eventually it, you know, it doesn't get oxygen. So the, I mean, the roots, it just gets saturated and it just kills the vegetation. So, um, that was in June. Um, we did, we did try to replant that after, so it was July um, which is, is, is too late, but, you know, in the right crop, you could get a partial, or in the right, right season, you could get a partial crop. Um, and, we, you know, it, that should have made 60 bushel beans, and they made about 25, as I remember. Um, but that, 30%. That's, I mean, that's just, that's just the way it is. I mean, it's, that ground is not high ground. It's low ground. So in a, in a, in a drier year, that's going to be beautiful crops. In a wet, flooding year, you may not have a crop. Soybeans were once the single most valuable U.S. agricultural export, with China importing an annual $12 billion worth from American farmers. After unpredictable floods like these, the landscape looks a little different. As Kendall shared his story with me, I couldn't help but wonder, how do farmers deal with this absurd level of unpredictability? Are farmers really America's greatest gamblers? Given that, and it's... 100% 100% unpredictable, 100% out of your control, is a farmer who's planting annual crops that are really based on a calendar. How do you plan for that year after year? When you have to go into this, are you just going in knowing it might get crazy and I have to just roll with it? 
Well, the, you've got the financial implication of that, and it's it's not so much that I'm not making as much as you've got to go to your lender and your your banker and and work those things out because if you're borrowing the money to put the crop in and you don't have the money to pay off your loan, just like if you own a car and you've got a car payment and you lose your job and you can't make your car payment, I mean, there's obviously you you may lose that car. It may be repossessed, and we face the same types of of issues. Um, one thing about us is we're a diversified farm, so we, we raise corn and soybeans. We also have beef, cattle, and hogs. So th- the thought always there is with multiple commodities, if one doesn't make money, maybe one of the other ones will, and it kind of helps carry you through. So the things that we talked about that we can control, we do our best to control. But when you have these other outside influences, weather, political issues that we can't control, I think that has more of an effect on farmers' Um, state of mind and state of mental health than anything because they know how to produce a crop and they know that weather is going to be a variable but they're going to do everything they can to do the right thing to, to, to get the best yield and the best result but when you have these outside influences come in that are completely outside our control that really gets to be nerve-wracking many times you know rightly or wrongly there's a lot of people who view agriculture as a big component to climate change, greenhouse gases, soil erosion, water quality, all those types of things. When you think about the public's perception of agriculture as related to climate change, what do you, what would you say? Um, I think agriculture is an easy target for a lot of people to um, um, concern about climate change and greenhouse gases and emissions and carbon. And I mean, the list goes on and on. Agriculture has existed for as long as this um, this country has been around, and um, um, I, I guess I <laughs> I think you could point the finger a lot of places. You know, you could talk about pollution, you could talk about point source pollution and non-point source pollution, and runoff, and and so we've talked about a lot of ways, um, a lot of techniques, and that farmers are using to counteract some of those negative things. Think of point source pollution and non-point source pollution as specific versus general pollution. So point source pollution is the kind of pollution that comes from pipes and factories and sewage plants, which are federally regulated. Non-point source pollution is trickier. It's a combination of pollutants from larger areas, such as streams full of contaminants from parking lots, gardens, and gutters. Um, But to want to regulate a cow because she discharges methane. I mean, you know, come on. Some of these things are just pretty much out in the left field. And I'm, I'm concerned. And most all farmers that I know of are wanting to, to do the right thing for the environment. I mean, I'm, I'm a livestock producer. And so, you know, we have, you know, manure that we have to, um, from the animals that we have to tend with. And so we use that as a, as a natural fertilizer that we put on our ground that, that, um, that the crops utilize and uptake. And sometimes that's not as profitable for us to do, but it's the right thing for us to do. And so farmers from, from the ones that I see will do the right thing. And it, is, it doesn't always come down to dollars, is they know they want to protect the environment and uh, we want to keep a clean water source. I mean, my family lives on this farm. They drink the water from a well that comes out from underneath this farm. And so you bet we want clean water and we want healthy water, and we want um, a healthy food supply, and we're going to do what we need to do to to make sure that happens. 
I heard this before almost verbatim in episode three with Austin Arndt, a beef farmer in Wisconsin. Farmers drink the same water they farm on. They need to ensure what they're putting on the land is safe enough for their family as well. Greenhouse gases are one thing you mentioned there, that that's a real hot button topic. Yeah, I mean, greenhouse gases, you know, from plants, uh, I mean, it is, I mean, that's the natural process. But again, it's become highly politicized. And, and it, it, I mean, does this country want to import its food? Well, they want to import its food and you're growing the crops somewhere else and it's deemed that the crops and the plants are what's causing this, then it's going to happen somewhere else in the, in the world. And so... That's not that's not what anybody wants, right? So no, I think it's I think it's it's um, it's way overstated, um, and again, farmers in general are very um, very concerned about the environment, very protective of the environment. I'm not a scientist, I'm not a climatologist, um, but I guess I don't get as concerned and worked up as some people on. Um, the changing weather patterns, because naturally over time, those things happen. I wondered, would a climatologist agree? I had to know, so I asked one. Uh, hi, my name is Pam Knox. I'm the director of the University of Georgia Weather Network, and I am an agricultural climatologist. I've been looking at weather and climate and its impacts on agriculture for most of the last 30 years. Given your background, your experience, Climate change is a word that pops up a lot now in the news. How would you define it based upon your professional well, experience? Yeah, climate change is, you know, it's it's a very broad term. And, uh, of course, we know as climatologists studying past weather that the climate has changed naturally over millions and millions of years. And that's not a surprise. There's a lot of different ways that you can measure that. But we also know that sometimes... Um, Climate change is because of things that humans do. And um, the U.S. as a whole and the Southeast has seen an increase in temperature over time. Now, there, you know, there's a lot of year-to-year variability. That's just a natural part of the climate system. So not every year is going to be warmer than the last year. But we've definitely seen that increase in average temperature over time, especially from the 60s to the present. And one of the interesting things about it is that the daytime temperatures are changing they're getting warmer, but the nighttime temperatures are getting warmer much faster. You know, when I when I talk to farmers, often they'll say, "Well, you know, if it's one degree warmer, that yesterday was half was was ten degrees warmer than than it is today, or something like that," because they're mixing up weather and climate. So from a from a weather standpoint, yeah, there's a lot of variabilities day to day. But from climate, you know, we're looking for these fairly small changes in in temperature and precipitation and things like that over time. Um, and it's not thousands of degrees. It's we've probably seen over the last, uh, say, say since the 1960s, that the temperature has gone up by almost a degree. So you might see some geographic shifting of agriculture based upon some of these changes to more appropriate areas. Yeah, and you, you know it's interesting because you're actually already seeing that there are places now in the north central parts of the U.S that used to only be able to grow wheat because there wasn't enough rain there. And now, because the shifting temperatures and shifting uh, precipitation patterns has allowed some of these areas to shift from wheat to corn, uh, which is a little bit more lucrative crop. But that's only happened because of the changes that we've seen in climate. So 
So we know that there are changes that are going to affect things negatively, but in some areas, at least, it's also providing some uh, at least positive economic impacts by allowing them to have longer growing seasons or allowing them to switch crops. Pam brought up a new and interesting concept. I've never heard of a positive outcome concerning climate change before. But if farmers are able to adapt to changing climate and rotate crops appropriately, might it be possible to rewrite the climate change narrative? I wondered, with the right information, could farmers turn climate change into a proper business, turning challenges into opportunities? Farmers are probably the single most um, dedicated consumer of weather information. They make decisions on it on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis. Um, for example, if if you know that rain's going to come and the next rain's not going to come for three days, that might tell you you can go out and cut some hay because the hay has to sit in the ground and dry out before they can roll it up into bales. Um, might also tell you that it's okay to uh, pick cotton down here in Georgia, but you might not want to pick peanuts because peanuts, you have to have soft enough earth to be able to dig up those peanuts. So you might want to wait till after a rain. Is it fair to say that the weather patterns are becoming, for lack of a better word, non-scientific, weirder? Is there more rapid shifts in the weather when you look at the actual stats, say across the country as a whole? Yeah, if you look at the statistics, um, as I mentioned before, the temperature is rising, but it's not rising the same place everywhere in the U.S. And the nighttime and daytime temperatures are rising differently. Uh, we've noticed that there's a lot more uh, uh, record high temperatures than there are record low temperatures, which is pretty consistent with a rising temperature. Do you think the weather is going to affect food prices, food availability? If you're looking into your crystal ball, going out into the future? Yeah, I, I think there's no doubt that we're going to see changes um, in food crops and the prices of food crops. Um, but we're going to see uh, increasing problems with growing uh, both things that we consume directly like vegetables, but also things like corn that are fed to animals. It sounds like there's climate changes that are affecting agriculture, but they're not extreme. And people tend to panic around climate change now. So looking at the panic scale, one to 10, 10 is total panic. One is business as usual. Realistically, from a science perspective, when it comes to climate change and growing food, where are we at? I think that question partly depends on what your focus is. If you're looking at just the U.S., um, the U.S. is a pretty wealthy nation. I think they're probably going to be able to find ways to pay for food from other places. The question is going to be, how about other countries? Other countries that live, that have a lot more marginal agriculture, that have a lot more people and are more likely to go through these really significant droughts or floods or both, um, and so are not going to be able to, to feed their people. Of course, we're all global citizens, and so it's not really fair to just say, well, you know, we've got ours and that's, that's fine. Um, I think you need to keep in mind that even though I think um, there's going to be some hardships in the U.S., we're going to probably have to change what we eat um, in response to uh, warming patterns and, and your, your variability too, especially increasing 
extremes, but we always have had more food than we need here. But that's just the U.S. Countless other nations, some with far less access to agricultural tools of today, will be impacted by the agricultural implications of climate change. Without strong tech and a lot of money, not all nations will be able to readily adapt. So trying to put it on a numeric scale is a little tough just because it, it really depends on what your perspective is. I think for the U.S., I think we're probably going to see some disruptions because, of course, a lot of our food does come from other places. On average, the U.S. imports about 15% of its food supply annually. That means about one in six of our meals comes from foreign shores. Those numbers get larger as you divide them up. 32% of our vegetables are imported. 55% of our fresh fruit is shipped here. And a whopping 94% of our seafood isn't from America. If you have droughts in the place that produces a lot of uh, oranges, for example, um, that not all our oranges come from Florida and California, but some of them come from other places. If you all of a sudden have more droughts that affect that, that yeah, that's going to affect our ability to get oranges here. Given these changes, given the weather and where the climate's going, how can consumers play a part in this and be part of the solution instead of just sitting on the sidelines feeling victimized? And how can they help? I think the number one way that consumers can help is to reduce their food waste. Uh, food waste is one of the biggest issues with um, greenhouse gases. You buy this food, and I think we've all probably done this at some point. You buy this food thinking, yeah, I'm going to cook that and it's going to be great. So the number one thing to do is buy stuff locally. So you could cut down on transportation and eat it all. Um, don't waste the food so that you don't have um, that that food waste going into landfills and creating methane. I wondered, what kinds of changes has Pam seen exactly? I wondered about the kinds of huge weather events that have transpired under her watch and the impact they've had on farms close and not so close to home. Going back to Hurricane Michael last year, um, really hit the southwest part of Georgia very hard. Many of those people had... um, pecan orchards that they had trees that have been producing for a hundred years. The storm knocked down every one of their trees. And, you know, when you, you've lost that income and not just for one year, but for at least seven years before they can even start producing. Because when you put a new tree in the ground, um, usually it takes at least seven years before it's producing. And of course it takes a long time to get back to full production. So that's one example um, that we saw with, with hurricane Michael last year. Um, with Hurricane Florence last year in North Carolina, it hit with all those rains in uh, the, south, the, the southeastern part of North Carolina where most hog production is formed. And a lot of those hog producers had their entire farms wiped out by that. You know, we're dumping a lot of this stuff on our kids. Uh, we've messed it up, but we're not going to really be around to see the worst of it because uh, if you're 60 like I am, then, you know, even if I live another 30 years, that's not going to be anywhere near as bad as it's going to be in another 50 years or another 75 years. And it's not going away. It's just going to get worse. So is it an exponential curve? Not clear yet. It depends completely on what humans do. And if, if you think it's hard to predict the weather, you ought to try to predict human behavior. <laughs> as much less rational, at least the weather behaves by the laws of physics, you know. 
Um, human behavior does not follow that rule at all. True. Humans aren't as predictable as the weather. But humans are also in charge of winning the climate war. I was curious, what sorts of tools might we use to fight the war? What about genetically modified crops and other technological advances? What about new seeds, super crops, and better water supplies? Was an agricultural Silicon Valley the answer to unpredictable weather? These are the questions I asked Neil Gutterson. So, hi, my name is Neil. Um, I am the uh, chief technology officer at uh, Corteva AgriScience. There's a lot happening in the ag space. And I think when people think high tech, they immediately go to Silicon Valley. They think about the new phone that comes out every year, the new watch that's coming out, tablets to get more powerful. But so much is changing in ag, and I don't think people are aware of it. Do you think there's a big case to be made that the Midwest is really the new Silicon Valley for agriculture? Well, I'd love to think that's the case, Diego. Um, you know, first of all, let me just acknowledge the, your, your perspective there, which is that uh, a farm looks like a farm looks like a farm. And uh, probably the farmer 50 years ago may not look all that different, maybe a few fewer weeds perhaps. Um, but uh, it, from the outside, it looks like it did 50 years ago. But from the inside, if you can envision what's actually happening on that farm, the amount of data, the amount of technology that goes into generating that simple looking farm, it is, it is phenomenal. Biology, agriculture, incredibly data rich, uh, incredibly exciting time actually um, for the change that uh, like, a, like a Silicon Valley is happening right here in the Midwest. I think there's a bit of a dark view of advancement within agricultural technology. When people think of advancing tech within agriculture, that will help benefit the environment, not degrade it. What are some ways that new tech is benefiting the environment that maybe people are missing, they're looking over and said they're just focusing on their view, which might be a darker view? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, I, I think that's a uh, perception that probably is out there of, of big agriculture. It doesn't necessarily send a thrill through people. It maybe sends a little chill through a lot of people. Um, I work here in, in big ag. I think we do some wonderful things. But um, first of all, uh, you know, we, we know it's critical that farmers are able to protect the food that they um, are pr producing for, for all of us as consumers. And <clears throat> crop protection chemistry is part of that. But over the last 50 years, we found ways to continually reduce the amount we use. We formulate those products better than ever. And we're developing um, biologicals, natural products that are, I think, what a lot of people intuitively feel would be better for the planet and as tools to help us produce our, our food. Those things are happening. They've been happening. And technology is enabling that to happen. Those things are indeed happening. But this kind of information isn't always readily accessible to the public. There are so many big words that get tossed around. GMOs, superseeds, disease-resistant antibiotics. Where does one even begin? And what ag tech doesn't exist now? It's on the horizon. Can we get consumers in on the ground floor of these new technologies? so they might be able to understand and accept them. And, and there are more and more tools that will help us do that. Um, even tools like computer vision that can recognize in a field where maybe there's a weed here, but not there, and let's spray just the weed and not someplace else. Or there's a disease over in this part of the field, let's spray that part of the field for disease and not this other part of the field that doesn't have it. 
um, th that would be a greener kind of um, agricultural system, let's say. I think when people hear that, it, it seems a little bit like science fiction. It, it's yeah. cool. It's, it's really interesting to think that I can send a, a robot or a drone or something out there in the field. It can identify what I don't want, specifically target that, and remove it. Realistically, like how far away is that type of technology? You know, it's uh, it, sometimes maybe science fiction is is not as uh, far away as we think. Um, so this future of farming, pieces of it are happening, and I think Diego, the what's really going to be exciting is bringing it all together, so that we can detect something in the field, be able to have the computer systems that um, a farmer can easily activate to send the drone directed to the right places and deliver that. These kinds of solutions, thinking beyond just the products, but the solutions that farmers want. This is the future. I asked Neil about other kinds of not-so-science fiction solutions, drought-resistant seeds, blood-proof crops, and other biological advancements. But we, we've been working on this for a long time, and I, I can give you a, a really cool example from, from work that we've done over the past decade and actually launched some products early in, the la in this decade, um, something we call Optimum Aquamax. And as it sounds, it, these are corn varieties that actually optimize the use of water. These are really smart plants that don't use the water in the soil when they maybe don't need to use it, but sort of because they don't use it when they don't need to, they kind of store it up in the soil so when it's a little drier time, they have more water available that enables them to grow effectively through a, a, a more uh, a drier time of the season. How far do you think biotech can push seeds and plants to adapt to increasingly greater stresses, fields that are flooded for long periods of time, fields that go dry for a very, very long period of time, and where now that just growth suffers? Is there a potential future where we could work into really, really extreme conditions, ones that are on the outsides of the bell curve today? Well, um, that, <laughs> it's another interesting question. You know, what we do with an Aquamax hybrid or a stress-tolerant hybrid is help them uh, survive periods of drought. So I, I think um, we will continue to improve our seed. Crops are inherently plastic. They can grow well under, under a range of environments. So that's great. And we'll continue to improve their, what I would call their plasticity. Remember, uh, but we're importing 15% of our food, right? And, uh, so I had to wonder, to were seed technologies and other innovations making farmers' lives easier just in the U.S.? Or was this a worldwide initiative? Climate change is a global problem after all. And our food supply outside of America is just as important as the meals we grow on our own shores. Um, I was recently in India and, um, you know, uh, met hundreds of farmers at a number of different stops along that, that trip. And, uh, you know, um, a smallholder farmer, that they're, they're not going to adopt a new system until it really, it can confidently be used. But you really see... Um, you know, younger and older farmers really excited about some of these changes that, that, that we're bringing. Um, and I think that will mitigate as well as help them adapt to, to climate change um, and give them more confidence that year to year they're going to be uh, successful. You can see that on, on the faces of farmers that we saw around the, the tents when we were traveling through India, a lot of excitement about uh, what the future has to offer them. That made me think, you know, I, uh, I what about consumers? Where do we fit in? How do these changes impact the final step in the food chain? 
fundamentally, one of the um, simple uh, outcomes would be, of course, higher priced food more often. And so uh, when there are droughts, um, say for uh, which in the last decade we've seen for, let's say, uh, in Russia or Australia that impacts wheat production, um, then the price of bread goes up. Um, our ability to actually create varieties that are, that are easier to ship, for example, um, mitigates some of the changes in, in production around the planet and makes it easier if there's a problem in one region to get food from another region. I think um, consumers love having technology in, in their phones and in their cars, but they don't like the idea of somehow of technology in their food. Um, and I talked at the beginning and you asked the question, you know, look at a, a crop in the field. It's rich with, you know, information. Um, I think, you know, uh, for consumers, um, just know that, uh, w you know, companies like ours, we're dedicated to delivering really high quality food in, in a good way. And the technology we use um, doesn't change the nature of the food they get other than to make it higher quality and, and safer for them. So, um, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's all about trust. And um, we're committed to being more open about how our how food is produced. And I hope we can earn the, the trust in a, in a much better way than ever before of the consumer who looks into agriculture. Um, and we encourage them to, to have that look with us. After speaking with Neil, I realized that agriculture, as both an industry and our food supplier, is transforming as a result of climate change. In response, we as consumers may have to adjust our perception of food as well. But just how much technology in our food are we willing to stomach? I returned to Kendall in Indiana for a Frontline's perspective on technology in our food. Um, well, the modern genetics and, and the new developments of with the use of biotechnology and traits um, certainly have increased yields, have increased production. Um, no question about that. It also has increased cost for farmers as well. I mean, those breakthroughs, those scientific achievements don't come without a cost. And those companies that create those and get those approved, those traits, um, I mean, they have a lot, a lot, I mean, millions of millions and millions of dollars invested in those traits. And so they've got to have that return to them and understand that. And it could be 10 years after that is introduced before it gets through all the regulatory agencies of not only the United States, but more importantly, in foreign countries as well. Um, so we uh, farmers are really pretty quick to adapt to those new technologies and those traits um, and scientific breakthroughs. Uh, we adopt, adapt to those and we, um, we put those into place on our farms. Um, that's definitely made us more uh, efficient. It's made us more productive. Um, I don't know in the end if it's made us more profitable or not. Um, I don't know. I, I'm just not sure really how you control weather. Um, I, th I think that's, that's a variable that we accept that we don't have much control over. Now, you can plant you can, you know, they, they have, these companies have developed, for example, hybrids or seeds that are more tolerant to dry weather or, you know, more drought tolerant. Um, so that's something that we can do now. And I think those will continue to be refined as, as we go forward. Um, but there's, again, there's just not a lot you can do. I mean, you can install irrigation to, and that sort of thing. You can install dr drainage tile. Um, but as far as 
technology right now today, I just don't see a lot you can do to counteract weather extremes. I mean, would a fair way to sum this all up be you got to know what you're getting into. You have tools to mitigate risk. You control the things you can with the tools you have available in your toolkit. But at the end of the day, the weather is going to be what it is. You just have to adapt with that as best as you can. I think you've done a great job in summarizing that up. Is is being flexible is is key. We just we just kind of have a lease during our life, and we need to make sure that we leave it in better condition than we found it. And so that's kind of a that's kind of what I like to believe in, and I that's kind of the banner that I try to make decisions, cropping decision based on that um, that you know this is a God given resource that we have, and we live off the land. I mean that's that's reality. That sounds like a cliche, but obviously that's the resource that, that we have to work with, and so we have to not only maintain it, but we have to improve it. Because again, like you said, that's that's what gives us um, financial security. Is you know we we invest into the land and we get rewarded by the land. We invest into the land and we get rewarded by the land. In many ways, I hope Kendall's right. I hope we'll be able to exert the kind of control over our future that will allow us to prosper. But do we really possess that kind of control over Mother Nature? In agriculture, there's a huge investment in innovation to adapt to climate change, creating new seeds, irrigation techniques, technologies, and crops. This is happening outside of ag too. Desalination plants, ocean cleanup crews, carbon tax propositions, electric cars, you name it. But are we truly solving the problem? We're just sprinting to catch up. And what happens when Mother Nature does what she always does and fools us again? That's it for episode six of The Growing Debate. Thank you to Kendall Culp, Neil Gutterson, and Pam Knox for letting us pick their brains and engage with them on the complex topics of weather patterns and climate change. Stay tuned for episode seven, where we'll discuss what equality in agriculture really looks like. If you've enjoyed this inside look at modern agriculture, please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode of The Growing Debate. I'm your host, Diego Footer. If you have questions or topics you'd like me to explore, email me at thegrowingdebate at corteva.com. Thanks for listening.